Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The last few years have seen an increasing discussion of empire in the United Kingdom. For example, the discussion about the role of imperialists with the Roads Must Fall campaign at Oxford University and the now infamous literal deplatforming of Edward Tolson's statue in Bristol. Discussions within Wales are often shaped by political outlook, with some emphasising the Britishness of the imperial project as something done to Wales, while others seek to acknowledge the willing role many in Wales played in creating and perpetuating the British Empire and Welsh imperial project, the Ladva in Patagonia. We are joined today by two experts in imperial history, as we seek to understand more about this subject and what it means for the Wales of today and tomorrow. Our guests are Lucy Taylor, Senior Lecturer in the Department of International Politics at Aberystwyth University. Hello, Lucy. Hi there. And Rhys Owens, who is a PhD student in imperial history at Swansea University. Hello, Rhys. Hi there. Um, so to start with, could either of you try and define what we mean by uh, imperial history and empire in the British context? Your question is a, a very, very difficult one to answer just because uh, it, it, imperialism is, a, is a, even within the British context, is an incredibly broad set of different, well, interest groups, values, uh, you know, di- different uh, aspects of what, 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 um, of, of what it means to, to essentially uh, dominate and and, co- and coerce a, a, a different a different culture a different country and and essentially I I, I would say that from, from that perspective uh, what we're talking about in terms of imperialism in the British context is how Britain increased and put, put across its its power in, in across the world and in the modern world um, and how it, it was actually fairly uniquely good at doing that on, on such a grand scale. So some of the things we, we, we might want to consider here is is how many parts of the world economically were brought into into the British sphere influence, specifically through Brit- the British idea of free trade, how culturally, Britain sent um, missionaries out into into the um, parts of the world. It sent out different uh, groups which were trying to put European the idea of European superiority out there. That we're trying to make these places more, in many ways, more like Europe. And also just the idea of British interests and how that brought about political control over places. But it, you know, not always. You know, we look at how the idea, the ideas of formal and informal empire, about how Britain would would uh, seek control over areas without formal political annexation if, if it could do so, but also in in places where the, the pressures, uh, different interest groups uh, seeking to uh, to get particular interest out of particular areas for um, forcing the hand of, of political annexation so it's an incredibly broad topic in many ways it's that's a, probably a fairly um uh, inadequate way of, of describing it but just to introduce some of the some of the ways in which we can start to look at, at imperialism and how and how how british interests were put, put out across the world i was just thinking that actually i suppose what i would contribute was would be to say that from a global perspective um, colonialism wasn't just something that was perpetrated by the British, that in many ways this is all part of far wider and bigger kind of global dynamics tied up with particularly the first wave of of, of Spanish conquest into the Americas, the so-called discovery of the Americas, and the way in which capitalism uh, and colonialism, particularly settler colonialism, went hand in hand And we can see British colonialism, particularly in its sort of heyday, sort of riding on that on that bigger, wider, larger waves of colonialism. But as she says, it's it's almost impossible to say what is colonialism. (laughs) Well, it's a nice, easy question then. And, you know, a lot of this discussion in Wales uh, revolves around the idea of or at least the question of whether Wales was a colony. You've seen the BBC documentary the, and the book that preceded it from Martin Johns. You've seen uh, literature on this subject by leader of Plaid Cymru, Adam Price. Can you describe Wales as a colony of England? Well, this is where I'm, I'm probably going to draw on Martin quite a bit because I think that his take on this is actually very accurate. And that is to say that, you know, when we look at, at the conquest of Wales in the medieval period, well, it's difficult to put colonialism back into that period. But if you were to make 
a comparison, um, an appropriate comparison, then you can, in many ways, describe the conquest, the medieval conquest, as a colonial project. The way that Welsh people were excluded from certain aspects of the state during the medieval times certainly has a lot of echoes of, of um, aspects of modern colonialism. But I think the very real difference between when you would describe uh, the way that you would describe modern colonies of the British Empire in the 19th and 20th century and the Welsh relationship with England within Britain progressed is that ultimately the story of Wales's relationship with England is one of assimilation. And it's one of an assimilation which, which was by no means a forced assimilation. Of course, there was the initial conquest, which, which was forced, but over time, this sort of uh, the assimilation into England and, and particularly the Acts of Union in the 16th century, which was very much making Wales a region of England legally and administratively. Um, this was very much a, a very different story to, to the forced economic and political conquest that we, we, we saw in the 19th and 20th century British Empire and in many ways was one in which uh, Welsh people were very much uh, accepting of the political reality as the centuries wore on. So to this point of where we, well, by the time we get to the 19th century, um, not only have the Welsh and uh, Wales's relationship with England within the British state become very much a, a very clear political reality, but it becomes very much a part of the psyche of what it was to be Welsh. Being Welsh was to be British and that a lot of uh, the identity of Welsh people were tied up amongst uh, having a, an almost collaborationist approach, a contributionist approach to the British state, very much tied up with um, pride in the royal family and pride in British power, which then got tied up with imperialism. So I think it's very difficult to describe Wales as a colony in the same way that you would describe India as being a colony, or even as in many ways, Australia or South Africa as being a colony. And I think a lot of modern issues that we have with the British Empire and the way that we think about the empire in Wales, a lot of the problematic aspects of it come from this idea that Wales, the Welsh experience has too much similarity to, to, the, to many other colonial experiences. The reality is that Wales is, for a, you know, a, a while now, has been a part of a democratic state in which Wales is part of the United Kingdom by choice. And people may well disagree with Wales's relationship with Britain, and they may well disagree with Wales's relationship with England. The reality is, is there is an agency, there's a historical agency uh, uh, that the Welsh has had, which were denied to many other people across the world. And that, in my mind, is the difference. So, I, so in my head, Wales is not a colony of England. It once was, but it has ceased to be so over many hundreds of years. I'm sure we'll get back onto that uh, at some point later. But Lucy, do you have anything to add on that? I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with Therese, but I would say it depends a little bit on how we understand what colonialism is. Uh, if we understand colonialism to be a series of sort of logics and attitudes and practices, then very often we can see dimensions of colonialism at work in the relationship between Britain and Wales. I agree that, you know, Wales is not Australia, but um, Wales has in the past been fairly closely aligned to what we might call a settler colony. And precisely these processes of assimilation, which have been in, in train for, what, 900 years now or what have you, these processes of assimilation are one of the key practices of settler colonialism that we see at work, particularly in the United States of America, but also throughout the Americas and in Australasia. So I would say that something like assimilation is a process that we associate with colonialism, but that doesn't necessarily make Wales a colony. But it, it does mean that, um, that Wales is always positioned in a subordinated position to England, and that counts for something. And Wales is often configured in a kind of racialized subordination as well, which also is associated with colonialism. So it depends in some ways on the way that you define colonialism and how you want to go about thinking about it. I think, uh, as Lucy says, the, 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 the dynamics of the relationship are very important and there is undoubtedly a unequal relationship of Wales with the rest of the United Kingdom, particularly with Wales and England, and that's true to this very day. 
I think they're having an unequal relationship. That is, a, I think, a different thing to, to, to colonialism. And uh, you're absolutely right, Lucy, that, um, you know, there, there are elements of the relationship with Wales and England which, which have similarity to colonialism. But it, I think how you, how you would describe the modern relationship with Wales between Wales and England and Wales and the United Kingdom has elements of a historic colonialism, but which do not constitute the same kind of colonialism which Britain has practised in other parts of the world. Yeah, and I think it's hard to speak up about the Welsh as being, as it were, an indigenous community in the same way that we might speak about Aboriginal Australians. But there are elements, particularly in relation to the Welsh language, where we do see some very strong parallels between dynamics of, of, of language assimilation and language resurgence in Australia or um, Canada or Latin America. So we can often, I think, learn quite a lot about Wales by looking at um, processes, processes that happen elsewhere without necessarily, you know, as it were, swallowing the whole uh, concept in many ways. For me, Wales is, in many ways, it, it's, it's nearly always been in a very ambiguous kind of a situation in which it uh, sometimes is colonising and at other times feels colonised. And that ambiguity is in many ways, I think, part of the subject position of Welshness. It's part of what, what it means to be Welsh, is to be in some ways drawn towards the advantage, taking advantage of being part of the British Empire or of migrating to the United States of America or even to Patagonia but at the same time, always feeling this sense of a sort of oppression, which is often construed as being colonial. I've Reece, stunned everybody into silence no, now. Not at all. I just want to give Reese a chance to come back and then I, I'm going to comment. Reese. Yeah, I, just to pick up on some of the things that Lucy, Lucy said as well, but yeah, I again agree with, with all of that. I think, I think um, for, for me, what, what, what is an, an interesting thing is that the, the inequality of the relationship between Wales and England, certainly, you know, I think that is clearly where a lot of these um, uh, modern perceptions of Wales being a colony has come from. Um, I think, for me, a very clear dividing line is the fact that whereas Wales has suffered quite greatly in many ways as being part of the United Kingdom, particularly with regard to um, some of the some of the issues of assimilation with, with language and uh, and with some of the, the the cultural assimilation, in which aspects of um, Welshness has kind of been absorbed slightly. I think what I find very interesting is that in reality there has actually never been a major project by England or by the United Kingdom to try and completely wipe out the Welshness of Wales. The kind of assimilation of Wales in many ways has been a much more sort of natural process than you would see in places like India, for example, or, or in Africa, where, where you know, agents of imperialism were specifically trying to erase quite a lot of, of indigenous culture, not, not across the board, but certainly in terms of like Christianization and in terms of the, the um, subjugation of, of certain aspects of, of indigenous culture. The interesting thing in, um, in, in, in Wales, and I know this would be a, a, a controversial topic, but I actually, I think it's very difficult throughout history to see any per purposeful attempt by the English state to erase Welshness as well. In many ways, you know, well, some of these elements of Welshness were, were more to do with the natural consequences of being close to a very large dominant neighbour, which is very, very problematic in all sorts of ways, but it's, it's very different to, the, to colonial uh, actions that you would, would see um, being perpetrated by Europeans in other parts of the world. Both, this is absolutely fascinating that the undergraduate historian in me is desperately trying to join in with the conversation rather than ask questions. So if, if we take the point where Wales becomes part of um, an English empire, um, the, the, the Welsh person in me will say it was the, the Tudor-created empire and all that entails. But what role did Wales play in that early imperial period? You know, what would be called that English empire prior to uh, 1707. I can have a go if you like, because I, I mean I think I think sort of building on from what I was was what I was saying about the Welsh being both colonising and colonised is that the Welsh were Welsh people, um, ordinary foot soldiers and indeed settlers, 
um, played a key role in the colonization of Ireland, for example. If we turn to face west, instead of looking towards England, if we shift our gaze west, we can see that actually the Welsh were maybe not the, not the prime movers, but they were certainly part of the sort of the, the junior officers and the, the settlers um, who went uh, to um, who went to Ireland. Similarly, the Welsh um, were um, part and parcel of colonization of the United States of America. The Welsh were famously, um, you know, one of the very early leaders, uh, controversially, uh, well, they played a very controversial role in Pennsylvania. They tried to take over from William Penn, and there was uh, lots of shenanigans went on there. Uh, and indeed, that was the first Ulava, that was the first of the, the kind of the settlements in, uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, the Wel Welsh Quakers bought 40,000 acres in order to uh, settle a place the, where the Welsh could um, rule themselves and speak their own language and sort of live together in an enclave. This was the first uh, of the Awaladvas, but eventually uh, the third one became the, uh, the colony in Patagonia. So I would say that the Welsh played an absolutely key role. They were always working from a position of subordination. It was always, they were always part and parcel of a wider and larger England-driven um, um, initiative, but they were also seeking advantage for themselves, financial advantage, political advantage, in terms of power and their own status within what was becoming England and Wales. So they took that advantage. Yes, um, and I think actually this taking advantage is a very key point because I think what, the, the Welsh have always sought to find advantage and take advantage of being uh, of being close and being uh, partly assimilated with England. It, they've always sought opportunities that, that that relationship with England has given them. Exactly the same way after the Act of Union with Scotland as well, you know, Scottish people were exceptionally keen to take advantage of the opportunities that, that afforded. I, I want to know, we're mostly obviously, of course, here talking about lower landed gentry and, 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 and upper classes. I think probably during this period, um, the empire didn't really come into the day to day of ordinary people's lives, except for those who, who, who um, emigrated. But talking about the, the, the early English empire, certainly, as um, Lucy has pointed out, emigration opportunities, particularly to the United States and the Welsh tract of Pennsylvania, and, and also early opportunities within the East India Company as well. So um, there were Welsh people uh, present in the East India Company, not in any particularly large numbers, but they were there, and they were very self-conscious of themselves as being Welsh, um, and they would uh, take advantage of patronage networks um, ever uh, being close to London in particularly afforded them, and opportunities to, to, to serve in an imperial capacity in order to make their fortunes. I think a very interesting aspect of, of the early English empire is actually some of the justification for the colonization of America actually comes from the foundation legend of Prince Madoc, who was supposedly a uh, legendary uh, Prince of Gwynedd, who uh, allegedly uh, landed in America prior to Christopher Columbus. And during the Elizabethan period, uh, this was used as a justification for British imperial, English imperialism in America on the basis that this uh, Welsh, uh, almost undoubtedly mythical Welsh prince had, uh, had landed there uh, before the before other Europeans had done so. There is a distinction, I think, between early, when, when we're talking here about the early imperial period, where I think in many ways the, the renaissance in how the Welsh thought about themselves and how they kind of constructed their identity is, is quite a modern phenomenon and in many ways started being constructed in the 19th century. There was always this idea that Wales was different and there was always a feeling of difference. But my perception of, of Welsh involvement in the early empire is certainly one in which uh, individuals were seeking advantage from being a part of a, of a greater power, which is the case throughout the imperial period. But I think this... I think it's it's a different um, if it, it's a different story which later comes along where we're looking at um, a, a, a much more sophisticated idea for Welsh thinking about themselves within Britain and the Empire, whereas earlier on I think we are 
very largely talking about individual gentry, established um, aristocracy who are essentially finding opportunities where they can. Um, and then also, because we're saying about um, early emigrants, uh, the Welsh tract in Pennsylvania was a Quaker colony, um, I believe. So, you know, it, the, the age old story of uh, religious dissidents, uh, you know, mm. going and going to America to try to, uh, to try to find some freedom. I think that that's great. It very much uh, goes with my thinking on how it, it's more the kind of family which was at the forefront of uh, in that period and what they could achieve as a family rather than a, any kind of perceived nationality. And uh, and it's it's not just the colonialism in Wales. It's just I, I love looking at Welsh links in England and some of the great English houses come from Welsh origins. You know, so Burley is the seat of the Cecils and Badminton is the Beauforts or Herberts from Raglan. You know, the links are so entwined, we just don't perceive it as that. But after that period, then, uh, the Act of Union really begins a period of extraordinary growth and domination of the British Empire. How would you characterise that period, contrasting perhaps the role of the Scots and the Welsh in empire? Yeah, so I in the, the the 1707 Act of Union was in it, it a very very um, obviously a very defining moment in, in British history. But I think in 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 terms of um, Scotland and the Empire, a, a extremely um, clear moment of as I was saying earlier about about Scottish people taking advantage of the opportunities of being part of our global network of them. and the Scottish did so immediately, and they did so in in huge numbers, and very and they came to dominate. Uh, so many aspects of it, you know, in, in the 18th century, we're looking at um, uh, the figure of Henry Dundas and how people talked about the Scottishization of not just kind of like imperial governance, but, but several aspects of the empire as a whole. And, and for Scotland, its relationship with the British Empire, starting from that point, is very, very deep. And, 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 and the impact the Scottish people had across um, the empire really, really clear. And I think in many ways that that is quite a difference uh, between between Scotland's experience and Wales's experience. Of course, like this, by 1707, Wales had already been a part of uh, under the English crown for several hundred years and had been administratively and legally part of England for 200 or so years. And, and you don't have that such a clear kind of moment of when when Wales becomes a, a really major part a part of the empire. And in many ways, it never really did in, in, in the same way. And 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 what we're what we're what we're looking at really with, with Wales is kind of like a, a, almost a story of individuals of, of of individual people who found who found opportunities and advantage. Um, whereas with Scotland, you are talking in many ways about a, a very um, broad uh, Scottish project, really, of of being heavily involved in the empire. So. Um, I think the Acts of Union were a really seminal moment in Scottish history uh, in terms of their global identity and, and how, how they projected themselves abroad. Whereas the Welsh have always been very present in the empire and always been there, never, never achieved in quite the same way. And I think actually that's where you get this situation where the study of Scottish history has always in many ways been very global. You know, you look at the look at books by Tom Devine, for example, where he talks about Scottish Scotland's diaspora and, and Scotland's empire. Welsh history has not had that outward global-facing look, mostly because of um, just the numbers that we're talking about and the difference within, you know, where, where, where Wales was not taking the same kind, not taking advantage of the same scale that Scotland has done. Um, so I think actually where we're looking at, you know, we're looking at Scotland and, and, and the Act of Union as being this really major moment where Wales never really had the same kind of moment of, of being incorporated into it in quite the same way. Can I just add one thing to that? Uh, I just remember that I, I read a very interesting book by somebody I can't, whose name escapes me now, but he was talking particularly about the difference between sort of lowland Scot and highland Scots, and actually that... Uh, most of what I think most of what Therese was talking about is sort of the go-getting entrepreneurial sort of the, the kinds of people who were open to to England and participating in this were coming from the lowlands whereas the Highland Scots were um, actually branded by lowland Scots as being savage barbaric speaking a strange language uh, living uh, in primitive ways 
um, being sort of racialized in, um, in, in ways that sort of echo the ways in which uh, sort of the Welsh rural um, Gweren were also being uh, uh, racialized. So I, I think there's also some nuance within the Scotland side of the story. We are going to now talk about Iladba, uh, so the one in Patagonia. Again, this is one of the most difficult topics to discuss, uh, you know, in, in in the Welsh polity. I think that especially those who are interested in Welsh history and in colonialism. So lots of people try and portray what the Welsh were trying to do at the time as as less harmful than other forms of colonialism. Is that fair? Or is that people just trying to justify what they perceive to be a, a, a good thing? I think there's a lot of complicated things going on here. <laughs> um, I would say, first of all, you know, when we look at the practice of the Welsh in Patagonia, they took, you know, a handful of very old guns with them. Uh, and they were in no position to um, engage in sort of violent encounter with the indigenous people who they found there. Their, the whole purpose for them going to um, Oladva was indeed to uh, sort of set up um, a, a new homeland for uh, Wales where people could um, live in a Welsh speaking community that was ruled according to, to, to Welsh um, customs, Welsh practices, Welsh religious um, um, ideals, uh, and to set up a sort of a, like a new Wales. They felt that they couldn't live, um, as it were, an authentically Welsh life in Wales, so they went to Patagonia. Now that is sort of like the gloss, the sort of story, and it's a truth, it's a true part of the story. But the other part, of course, is that many of the people who went, maybe yes, were motivated by this sort of nationalistic kind of, uh, of move, but they were also motivated by wanting a plot of land um, and wanting to go out and seek their fortune. So the sort of romantic side, as it were, of the Welsh in Patagonia is part of the story. It's a true part of the story, um, but there are also many other kinds of layers. But as I said, they went out, um, they intended to, um, to settle, they intended to uh, uh, build a community, um, and their intention was not to sort of take over um, politically or militarily, they didn't want to sort of, you know, it, it, this is not India, <laughs> this scenario, nor is it Australia. And so they developed very peaceable relationships with the indigenous peoples. In fact, it was kind of like a symbiotic economic relationship. It was to the advantage of both the indigenous peoples who were already engaging with tra in trade with, the, with, with what they called the Spanish, with the Argentines, and it was to great, um, uh, to great advantage to the Welsh that they engage in this trade as well. So this was a, a peaceable community, family-led kind of settlement based on trade rather than sort of an imposition of colonialism. And to that extent, yes, the relationship was one of peaceable cooperation. So it was much better than storming in and imprisoning people and shooting people and, and, and sort of the kind of violent takeover that we and um, that was encountered elsewhere. I think this, I, the question you've asked about were the Welsh better, I think that's actually a, 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 something that has actually become part of our psyche as part of a constructed self-identity, which many Welsh people during the colonial period constructed for themselves. And I think in terms of, our, of the modern era, that has been compounded by the way that when we talk about the Welsh and the empire, what the areas of focus are. When people think about Wales and empire, they think of Ibladva, they think of emigration to Australia and to America and, and to other, other places. And I think also they think a lot about the missionary, uh, missionary movements, um, particularly in the northeast of India. And whilst the irony of that is missionaries were and could be incredibly destructive, um, culturally destructive, 
the idea of a missionary is, is a lot of people's idea of that is is a much more to do with like education and, and sort of being the welfare of indigenous people which they, they were involved with within this you know destructive cultural imperialism i, I think the, a lot of our modern psyche around wales and empire has come from that idea of the welsh doing particular things in the empire and that was very much something which during the 19th and 20th century the welsh attempted to construct the welsh press attempted to construct this idea that because wales was a uh, minority group within the UK because they were uh, better at languages allegedly because they were bilingual uh, because they uh, in many ways went out to the empire for religious reasons they believe themselves to be more compassionate they thought they were better they were more understanding um, and I think a lot of what how I don't think that thinking has transferred into into modern times but Actually, but that is one part of the story, right? You know, Eve Ladver and missionaries and emigration is one part of the story. The Welsh were imperialists and they went out to the empire to govern. They went out to do so as well as being emigrants and as well as, uh, you know, going to places in order to preserve their, uh, their own cultural um, identity. And this was very much a self-constructed thing that the Welsh press attempted to put around themselves in order to have a Welsh contribution to empire. And whereas I think from my research, there are certainly ways in which that bore fruit and in which that, that um, identity did transfer into practice, I think in reality, the story of Wales' relationship with the British Empire is actually much the same in terms of in terms of how Indigenous people would have regarded Welsh people. It would have been much the same as how they would have regarded the English, the Scottish and the Irish. And actually, I think Eve Ladbo is, is a really, really good um, example of how some of these ideas, how some of these self-constructed ideas do, do play out in practice. But when we look at, we, we, we can't lose focus on the idea of the Welsh were actually imperialists who went to govern places as well as to settle and as well as to educate and et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that's really striking, particularly if I'm reading sort of the memoirs of uh, some of the key protagonists who went out to Oladva or, or their lectures and things like that. They really sort of fly the flag for their own moral, high moral standards. And I think in many ways, what they're trying to do is to make political capital in many ways by a sort of waving this banner of high moral rectitude. Now, this, of course, plugs in to the what's happening in Wales itself with the with, with the massive strength of the chapels and nonconformism, which is also sort of brandishing this banner of high moral rectitude. The Welsh might not be the richest. They might not be the most powerful. They might not have the biggest guns, but they are the they are the, you know, the moral giants. And when push comes to shove, when you know judgment day calls that is what everybody's going to be judged on and this idea of sort of waving this banner of moral rectitude was a was a wonderful way to make welsh people feel very good about what it is that they were doing it was a source of pride of strength and of as as she says of, of this kind of a sort of moral um moral agenda i was going to say something though as well about the Welsh being uh, viewed as the same as the English by the indigenous. And this is perfectly true in some ways uh, for the Argentine state, because the Argentine state actually was slightly worried about the fact that the Welsh were going to sort of take over this tract of land in, in, in Patagonia, because they said, ha, this is the British Empire that's trying to stake a claim. They'd say, look, the English invaded Argentina in the 18, in the 18, 1813, I think it was. The English have taken over the Falkland Islands. Maybe this is them seeing their foothold in, uh, in the south of Patagonia. Little did they understand that the that this sort of ran entirely counter to the to the reason why the Welsh were actually going to try and escape English rule rather than being a kind of vanguard of English rule. So uh, I think this is where it's really important as well to have, be able to read and look at sources 
from the country that you're talking about as well, and not just believe the memoirs of of, of preachers, as it were, and the, the Welsh press when it comes to uh, when it comes to these things. So, what do you think, Lucy? Was the attitude of the Welsh at that time? Do they feel proud of the empire? Because you just mentioned that the settlers in Patagonia probably weren't in that kind of um, position. Well, it's very hard to say. In some ways, they weren't particularly, they weren't either proud or not proud of the empire, but they did know lots of people in the United States of America in, and in Australia, in South Africa, etc. They were part of a Welsh diaspora that talked to one another. They weren't necessarily flag-bearing, flag-waving for the empire, but they were certainly recognised that they were part of the empire um, and they called themselves British as well as kind of rejecting the, 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 the English state. It, it doesn't necessarily, history doesn't necessarily have to make sense, <laughs> I would say, if you know what I mean. People's responses are kind of very mixed and ambiguous, just as many people are today in some ways. I don't know whether that helps. Very much so. Uh, Reese. I was going to pick up on that point you were both talking about with regards to faith. What sort of role did faith play in that sense of purpose and justification for the actions of those who went to Aladdin? Yeah, so during the 19th century, as, as I'm sure you know, we know, the you know, Welsh faith became a, a very, very central part of Welsh identity, um, non-conformist faith in particular, which moulded in many ways out of a, a an opposition to Anglicisation. But, um, you know, it, it, the period of the 19th century, um, especially when uh, we're, we're looking at uh, Wales's relationship with England, this idea of being spiritual and respectable became a really, really important part of, of Welsh identity um, and, and, and Welsh psyche. Um, and, and the importance of, of appearing to be very respectable, particularly out of the controversy that came from, from the Blue Books in, in, um, in the middle of the century. Um, this idea that um, Wales had been painted as being immoral, uh, the Welsh language in particular was all like an uncivilised relic of a past age, that the Welsh had, uh, had uh, immoral tendencies, and, and particularly what, what the report was talking about um, with, with the ideas of, of Welsh women as well. And this became a really a rallying cry in many ways. Um, the Welsh had to, had, had, to uh, had to prove to their English counterparts that, in fact, they were, they were not the way that this had been projected. The Welshness was, was respectable and the, and the Welshness was, was really important. And, and that added to this idea of Welsh, Wales being this religious country. They wanted to, wanted to project themselves as being religious. And, and the way that, that Wales interacted with the empire was really, really affected by religiosity. As I said previously, one of the main things that we talk about, when we, what we think about when we think of um, the British Empire and Wales is missionaries, particularly in the northeast of India, um, but across, across the, um, the world as well. And, and this became a really important part of the psyche of Wales, that they were, they were Christianising the heathen, they, they were going out. And in many ways, interestingly, inside, very much part of the empire, but outside its formal structures, finding itself very much often at times in opposition to aspects of imperial rule. But I would say that for, for your average Welsh person in the 19th century, the way that they were, and the 20th century, the way that they would interact with the empire would be through their chapel and through their um, uh, interaction with uh, with missionaries abroad and hearing about updates from them and raising money for them, so so and 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 that, and that fed through into all sorts of thinking about Wales's place within the empire. You know, the press would talk about about um, their spiritual empire. People who were um, out serving in different parts of the empire would talk about the, the increased spirituality, the religious, the moral aspects that we talked about earlier that the Welsh brought to imperial governance. It was very much tied up with their nonconformism very much tied up with this idea that Wales was a very religious country, more religious than England, um, which was a, a point that they tried to make make quite a lot. And, and I think this is where, a lot, like I said, a lot of this idea of the Welsh being better imperialists and speech marks um, uh, comes from. It comes from this idea of, of, of Christian morality and nonconformism. Um, and and, and I, I, would, I think that for the average Welsh person, that would be their main concept of Wales's contribution to the empire and, and Wales's position within the empire is this sort of like religious non-conformist uh, moral force. Uh, yeah, building on that in some ways, I was just thinking about um, 
in actual fact, in our, in Argent, the Argentine state kind of ended up taking over the, the Welsh, the Welsh community, sort of drawing in and assimilating the, the Welsh community into the Argentine state. And there were a number of people who didn't want this to happen. Um, and uh, they sort of like really pushed against it, but it, it became inevitable. Um, but what they did in the end then, in terms of the empire I was thinking about particularly, is that they attempted to actually move Olava from Patagonia to South Africa. Um, and the idea was that the, the, the remaining, as it were, pure Welsh people would be uplifted from uh, Patagonia and taken to uh, the, the, the Transvaal and uh, um, placed there. So um, in, terms of the, in terms of the empire, they were using that empire uh, and they saw it as a vehicle once more for refounding a Wulava but this time in South Africa. So when we're talking as well then about this question of, you know, what is the relationship? Is it very moral? Is this a moral agency? Really, the, that particular movement wasn't driven by morals. It was driven once more by this desire to create Olada, this sort of self-contained, autonomous, Welsh-speaking, Welsh-thinking place. I think the WRU might be sending people to the Transvaal after this to see if we can find any descendants. We're getting, you know, the time we're talking about now is coming close to the end of empire. What happened with that period where the empire did diminish and fade away? And where did that leave Wales? There's a very, very long-standing and very interesting scholarly debate about how much ordinary people um, actually were influenced by the empire or, or thought about or even really cared about it. And I, th I think the way that I tend to, to think about it is that the, the empire was pretty pervasive throughout British society, including throughout Welsh society. And, and it was kind of culturally everywhere. You know, a lot of things were inspired by people, read about it. It was, it was a consumer product. But how far that translates into kind of like ordinary people having deep and, and people did have deep seated, you know, feelings toward it was part of their national identity, but how far it was a absolutely central, important part of their national identity, I think is quite it can be quite questionable um, when in the face of all of this kind of like consumerist sheen that is there. In terms of Wales, you know, the, the empire was an important part of Welsh identity, but I think it was an important part of Welsh identity because Britishness was an important part of Welsh identity. And the empire was kind of the ultimate projection of Britishness on a global scale. So there was pride in it. People felt like an important part of that. You know, when the empire started to, to disappear um, and when, when decolonization took place, that changed Britain's global image it, it changed to a degree how, how how people thought about Britain but it didn't really change like Britain itself Wales was still part of Britain it was still part of a very powerful country it was still part of uh, this you know very long-standing um, cultural force and I think in, in lots of ways people talk about how the British Empire compared to a uh, the British the decolonization of the British Empire was in many ways on the British side a lot less stressful and a lot less fundamentally uh, ch like changing force as you would have seen in places like France and Spain, who had, for various reasons, incredibly uh, psychologically damaging decolonization. And of course, I'm not here speaking, obviously, about people in uh, indigenous people in, in different parts of the world, because, of course, you know, their experiences of decolonization were in many ways were incredibly uh, horrible. Um, but just strictly from it in terms of, of, of a British perspective, the decolonization process was psychologically very different and in many ways a lot, a lot, a lot less um, severe in Britain. And I, I think um, Wales, Wales um, is, is no different to the rest of the UK in that sense. I, I think um, Scotland's relationship with empire had in many ways a, a, a more clear political um, ramifications in Scotland. In, Brit in Wales, it, it does seem to be that the, the whole idea of... of, of um, the empire not having a really major impact on people's day-to-day, -day, I think actually seems to bear fruit. And I think ultimately people in Wales 
were had the empire as an important part of their identity because it was part of British power. And then when that went, um, Britishness was still there, and and it it just molded that mold that role molded and that idea of themselves molded into the modern world. I, I can only really re reflect on the Oulad ban. I would say that it's interesting that some people from Patagonia answered the call and went to fight in the First World War. Not huge numbers, but some did. But I don't think anybody went to fight in the Second World War. And by the time we get to the Falklands-Malvinas conflict, you know, there are people of Welsh descent who are fighting against the British even though these, of course, are, were conscript soldiers on the sides of the, uh, of the Argentine forces. So there was a, there's, there was a, a gradual sort of um, um, distancing from about 1885 onwards, there was increasing embracing of Argentine identity. And now um, in Oberlava, everybody says, well, you know, I'm Argentine, I'm of Welsh descent, but I'm, I'm Argentine. And this uh, this identity, um, the the sort of the settler identity, took over completely from any kinds of kind of uh, British identity, which is in many ways to be expected. Though there is there has been over the last twenty years a kind of a resurgence in interest in Welshness, but a resurgence not just from Welsh people or people of Welsh descent, rather but people from all, all different kinds of descent, uh, from, or from the Spanish, Italian, even indigenous descent are sending their children to the Welsh speaking school in Gaiman. So these identities shift and change. And again, it's all about kind of seeking advantage. Will this um, identification, self-identification as Welsh, will it, will it help me to get on in the world? Is this a feather in my cap? Will it help me to improve things for my children? This is what generally motivates most people who are, who are migrants and involved in the colonial enterprise, I would suggest. I was interested that you just mentioned the military service there as well, Lucy, because I think that's something I would have liked to explore tonight. But I've just got one question left, and it, it's around that very topical subject at the moment, and it's around how colonial figures are remembered and memorialised in Wales. And contrary to um, what some people might think, there are a lot in Wales. I, th I think the Welsh Government audit of public recognition for colonial figures it runs to over 200 or so. And um, I'm just wondering, how do you think we should manage those kind of historical artefacts, like the Picton statue or... If anyone's been to Powys Castle, the whole huge displays of Clive of India, which are absolutely fantastic, but uh, hide a lot of uh, not so much Welsh, but the the Clive family history. How, how would you deal with those? You know, this strikes very much at the heart of you know a lot of like a lot of things that we uh, are very relevant in the news at the moment, and I, I think. Going back to just quickly to what I was saying about the decolonization not having a very sort of severe psychological impact on, on the Welsh, but what I do think is that the hangovers of imperialism have, have a very, very clear impact on the Welsh today and in our thinking and our psyche, the way we think about things. In terms of, you know, as we mentioned, the Thomas Picton statue, the, the things in Powers Castle, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's, there's, there's a desire among some groups of people to treat this, oh, it's history, it's history, it's all part of our history, it's all really important, and, and, and what happens in the past is perhaps relevant, but it's, it's happened in the past, we take history all as it is. It is history, but it's also very much a lot of other things as well, and actually how we commemorate the past and what we, what we regard as worthy of presenting in public or what we regard as worthy of commemoration touches upon all sorts of deep feelings and emotions and issues which uh, correspond to, to actually not just history but how we how we interact amongst different citizens today and how we interact with each other and how we build a world around each other in which people feel they can take part in and participate in.
And I think in many ways the, the, the debate will reduce it to just simply, oh, this is part of our history, it's all relevant, it's all important, we need to keep things that it is actually completely disregarded. The history is a living thing. It's not It's not something which is, we're just looking back on, it's something which impacts on our, day, our daily lives today, um, and which is and, and the way that we, uh, we talk about it and present it and look at it um, matters and has an impact upon people, and it should ultimately be accessible to people. You know, the history that is told by the way that we've commemorated is, is essentially, it's a white history and it's a history of people who have done you know we saw our history being a history of, of victors um you know you, you by and large people are commemorating in britain for not necessarily being on, under the boot of oppression right you know we're, you know we, people are commemorated because they were powerful um and i think it, it, it starts up a very very important conversation about what, the, what the, the point of commemoration is why we commemorate stuff what is relevant to commemoration in the modern world but also as you say um what we do with these things I, I think museums are always good places to hold artifacts, um, you know, and statues. I, I, I think um, having uh, they're, they're all, all of these things are part of the story of what me, of what uh, of history of Wales and why Wales is as it is. But we have to understand that the way we look back on history has mostly been fashioned by privilege and by people who are in a privileged position who have the ability to influence how, how we look back on history and I, th- I think all of these conversations are re- you know a few years ago we weren't having these conversations in work we looked at the empire as being something that was either done to us as being something in which we didn't have a something which was irrelevant to us or which something in which uh, you know we had a very very small impact or where the impact was it wasn't all that bad it's really really positive that we're having a a much fuller discussion around welsh involvement in empire in all aspects of it i think ultimately how 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 these statues and how these artifacts and how these things are are presented is probably a matter more for a curator and a historian but I, I think that it's really important that we have a discussion about how the teaching of history and how the way that we present history impacts upon the Wales and all of its diversity and how how we make history and Welsh history accessible to people in a way where they can look at it and think to themselves that's something that I actually want to learn about and, and want to get involved in and 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 how we really shed light upon these you know I said in a paper recently, the seedier aspects of Welshness, you know, the, the things that we have done to other people, not just things that have happened to us. And that's a bit of a rambling answer. And I didn't really commit either way to it. But ultimately, I, I just think that the fact that we are asking these questions is really good and really, really important. I totally agree with Therese, rambling or not. I, <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, for me, I think the really important thing is, is to unpack some of these stereotypes that we have, particularly for me, stereotypes around Oladva that has kind of iconic status. It's as if it's the myth has completely taken over from the facts. And just sort of, I, I understand, of course, that for many people, whose family members went out there, it's it, it's very, very important to them. And the idea is not so much to sort of then turn around and say, oh, the Welsh were terrible colonizers in, in, in Patagonia. We have to understand that this was the 19th century. And, you know, these kinds of attitudes and ideas were what was, was current. We shouldn't expect Welsh people to be any better or any worse than anybody else. But what we can do now is relook at that history and try and unpack some of those stereotypes. You know, Michael D. Jones is always wheeled out as this great personality, you know, uh, to, to look beyond somebody like Michael D. Jones. I'm, I'm writing something at the moment. And in that, I uh, one of the things I try to do is foreground what was happening to the indigenous people in Oualadva and trying to use some of the emerging archives that are coming out of that in order to sort of in order to place it in a full context. And in order to sort of, I would say that with Oladva, uh, it's like there's this, it's imagined as this magical glass corridor from Wales all the way to Patagonia, as if Wales can see the rest of the world, but it remains untouched by this. This, this dirty colonialism that's happening outside. And it, it goes in this lovely travelator, glass travelator, all the way to Patagonia and arrives pristine and pure. Well, it, it just wasn't like that at all. 
Um, and uh, so it's just sort of like smash this kind of like pristine glass travelator kind of image of, of the Welsh in Patagonia is really important. And to show the context and the, the humanity of the people who arrived, that they weren't just these kind of Indians of some sort, that they were real people with real names, that they had motives, that they were uh, they they had their own agendas, they had their families, they had their traditions, they had their beliefs, they had all these things. It was a whole society that the Welsh um, arrived in. But also, I think part of it is also to humanise the Welsh themselves, just to move away from this kind of romanticised idea of the Welsh who travel in pristine purity along this glass travelator, um, but that they were just as flawed and as ordinary as everybody else. And that makes them actually much more interesting. So for me, it's a project about humanization. It's about bringing a diversity of voices. It's about saying, what was it like to be on the receiving end of colonialism as well? but also to, to understand the sort of global context and the sort of big dynamics that are pushing this, dynamics of capitalism, ideas about liberalism and the individual, all this modernity um, and Eurocentric thinking, the dominance of, of Western thinking and Western universities in configuring what, what knowledge is. All of this... Um, is part of that package. And I think uh, sort of looking bigger and looking at the human, I think this is the way that we need to go. For me, I think it's great that we're all talking about this, not only because it's high time, but also I think it's because it, in some ways it's the mark of, of a community, a Welsh community that's beginning to feel more confident to actually begin to face up to some of these less seemly side, uh, you know, the, the, the seedier side, as she says, of, of, of life in Wales and colonialism. A lot of people would say that the last decade or so of, of, of British politics has sort of been overcome by a wave of imperial nostalgia. But how would you characterise Britain's relationship with empire in 2022, Lucy? Oh, now there's a question. Um, I think it's extremely troubled. And I think the fact that some elements are trying to revive a kind of um, imp empire, for me, it's the last kicking embers of, uh, of something that's, that's really already dead. I, I think that it's a last gasp to try and reclaim a mythology of the past, but I don't think that that is going to be possible. You see the same thing in the United States of America, this big white backlash, uh, kind of right-wing white backlash, as particularly of, of young men, but also young women. I think this is, this is part of a similar kind of trend. It's because they're really, really under threat from a world that has changed in a phenomenal way that they're really hitting out. And th that makes them very dangerous, of course. That's not to say that they're not dangerous, but um, that's how I see it. Yeah, I, th I think this is in many ways the result of, a, of Britain's unresolved relationship with its empire. After decolonization, there was a sense in many ways that to talk about the empire or to try to examine it, it was almost impolite, that it was this um, unpleasant thing that happened in the past that best forgotten. Um, and I think in that circumstance, and I think that's a scholarly attitude, it's not just a sort of general you know, psyche, but I think in, in, in a situation where you don't you don't examine something, you don't really present understanding, it allows a vacuum and a space for all sorts of different ideas to come along. And I think the problem that we have is that the relationship that British people have with their history can often be one in which they think of their, and you know, this is entirely natural, it's exactly the same in Wales, um, and it's exactly the same everywhere, in which their history becomes a really, really important part of their own identity. And we have a situation where people, uh, when they when when they feel as if you are putting a negative sheen upon that history, whether you are in some way attacking their sense of self, and I think that that in many ways is uh, is is a vacuum that has been left by scholars and other areas of civil society not really wanting to delve too deeply into that imperial background. I think the reality is that the the, the idea of 
asking the question of whether the British Empire was good or bad is not really a particularly interesting question. You know, history isn't a balance sheet of pros and cons. It's about understanding what happened. And that then gives people the opportunity to um, to fill in their own things based on their own moral compass. Right? People, could, people have a morality that they can apply, but they don't need to be helped along with that. But I think much of what we're seeing now is when we've allowed an ideology or, or a a sort of heroism to have built up around the British Empire because most people in Britain don't actually really know much about it. They've not really studied it in any great way and they don't really understand it um, in the way that, that maybe, maybe people should. And, and it's easy to see how the history of imperialism can lend itself to a kind of nationalism, to a kind of like, you know, all, all the good things we've done in the past. It, it ties up a lot with the, with the idea of British exceptionalism, the idea of um, how over the last few decades, British identity has not really kept up, or actually probably fairer to say English identity has not really kept up with this sort of like increase in, uh, maybe, maybe identity politics isn't the correct word for it, but you know, this, this idea of people being more and more aware of themselves, more aware of identity in which people, how people think about themselves culturally becoming a much more important part of, of their everyday life. And I think in England, it's very, very difficult um, to construct an English identity on, along the same lines that people might do around a Welsh identity or around a Scottish identity or, or, or around any other kind of, I guess, minority identity that you might um, you might you might think of. Um, the, the, the situation we're in now with culture wars, with the empire being brought up in in in, in the ways that we've discussed, it is indicative of a society which has struggled to keep up, I think, with the modern world, and I think has struggled to uh, resolve its own relationship with its past. And I think the more that we talk about these things now, the more that we can start to have those conversations, the more people can understand how, you know, what the empire was and, and why it has its impact upon the modern world as it does. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you both this evening. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go and find you on Twitter? Lucy? Oh God, I can't remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> they could just Google Lucy Taylor at ABBA or whatever, and they can find me or put, look for me on Twitter. I've got your Twitter handle here, Lucy. It's at Lucy Taylor underscore ABBA. And Reese? Um, on Twitter, I'm at ReeseOwens92. Wonderful. Thank you very much for listening this evening. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod or on our brand new website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.